We take up our Bibles at this time and turn to three different passages, all parallel, related, from the gospel accounts of the ministry of Jesus. I'm going to read first from Mark chapter 8, 11, and 12, and then from two chapters in Matthew, chapter 12, and chapter 16. So you can open your Bibles there too, but first of all, Mark chapter 8. 11 and 12, and all of these, or a couple of these occur after the feeding of the 4,000 and women and children by Jesus with a couple of fish and seven loaves of bread. At that time, Mark 8, 11, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Those are the words of Jesus to the Pharisees who came. And it must have been that they went to the the west side of the Sea of Galilee at this time. The Pharisees are out now. And now we go to Matthew chapter 12, really a... A prior event, Mark chapter 12, or Matthew 12, 38 through 42. <clears throat> a different occasion, but this is the first time that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So this is the similarity between this and our text. They're seeking a sign. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So we read from Matthew chapter 12, and now we read from Matthew 16. This is our text. This is the second time that a group of people has asked Jesus for a sign. Now it's another group. Before it was the scribes and Pharisees, just the Pharisees alone in Mark 8, but here's strange bedfellows, Pharisees and Sadducees. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times." A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. This is a crisis in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was the Lord of crisis, you should know. He caused conflict wherever he went, Divisions, 
among the believers and among the not believers, and oftentimes divisions among the leaders of the Jews themselves. Jesus, wherever he went, was a man of crisis, and perhaps the greatest crisis that there could be and the greatest event of crisis was his crucifixion. And so Jesus here is at this crisis in his ministry. He's done all these mighty, wonderful works. And now the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees are allying themselves in this relentless opposition to do him ill and eventually to crucify him. There is, in fact, a crisis that Jesus, of course, recognizes and which he uses as the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees come to him with their questions and they're tempting him, which he uses, does Jesus, for judgment. This is, in fact, the act of Jesus when he leaves them, the last words of our text, and departs. That's an act of judgment. He will have nothing to do with them, at least with this band of fellows, anymore. There's much to learn from this crisis in Jesus' life and ministry for our day. Much to learn about the sign-seeking of the Pharisees and Sadducees here. Much to learn about the cross of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for us, and the Word of God, which is sufficient for us. And much so that we can have faith. Faith in our day in basic, the basic and fundamental work of salvation, the great cross of Calvary, and the accompanying resurrection, sealing the worth of the cross and attesting of the worth of the atonement that Jesus rendered there for us. So we want to consider this sign, or this, this question, what sign from heaven? The Pharisees and Sadducees were asking for one long ago. What sign from heaven? I want to consider, first of all, that this was a sinful, a very sinful sign-seeking of an evil and adulterous generation. And then we want to consider that one sign that is given, Jesus says, and is already given in the scriptures, which will be, however, fulfilled in his own death and resurrection. And then finally, we want to consider that this is for uh, judgment for today and greater grace among those who are, uh, escape the judgment by the grace of God. So first of all, consider how sinful the question of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was who asked Jesus a sign from heaven. Gospel according to Mark says they were debating Jesus. They were arguing here simply that they were testing him and asking Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. Now this would be a sign to corroborate his claims that he was the Messiah. This would be a sign to prove without a doubt to them that he is the Savior that he says he is, that he says he will be. This is what they want a sign for, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't trust him. They want themselves to judge the authenticity of this one. They are critical of him. They put Jesus on trial. They are driven here by hatred. 
They are the blind leaders of the blind who want to preserve their jobs in Israel, like some sad ministers today, and they want to do this by promoting their lies, and especially their lie that Jesus is not the Messiah. So they come asking Jesus himself to show a sign from heaven, sure that they would trip him up, convinced in their minds that he wouldn't be able to show a sign from heaven, that himself would be proven to be not the Messiah that he claimed to be and the Son of God that he sometimes blasphemy, uh, blasphemously claimed to be. Surely, if he showed a sign from heaven, this could be the import of their, wor- their, their question, he would fall on his face and show himself to be the charlatan that they knew he was in their minds. You see, maybe they were thinking that Jesus needed to show something like manna from the sky. Hadn't done that yet, and that was from heaven. And all of these other things that he was doing, and surely they couldn't deny them, and this feeding of the 4,000 and then 5,000 earlier, they couldn't deny that. But that wasn't from heaven. That was just right here on this earth, and maybe he pulled the fish out of the pond and, and got the bread out of his pocket and the other pockets of the disciples. And what was going on, they don't know. But, and if it was a miracle, it was from the earth and maybe from hell itself, which they thought... According to tradition, some of them thought was indeed the case, that if there were miracles that were just done on the earth and it wasn't fire from heaven, it had to be from Beelzebub, the devil. And maybe that's what they're thinking, that Jesus surely would show himself a greater Elijah than Elijah, who called fire down from heaven on the offerings at Mount Carmel, and that would show, yes indeed, maybe they would go along with that, Maybe he could stop the sun like Joshua did in answer to prayer, cause the stars to fight for the Israelites and now against the Romans as another king and other judges had done. So they're asking for something above and beyond what he'd already already been doing. Now remember what Jesus had already been doing. Jesus had been doing many, many things, many, many miracles. His words were surely testimony that he was from heaven. His miracles supported the fact of what he said. He came from heaven. And that's what one had to prove, of course, that he was from heaven. He didn't come from uh, a group of uh, uh, self-made politicians and and was vying for the leadership in Israel. He, He came from heaven as Messiah has promised that he would do. He had healed the sick. He had uh, given sight to the blind. And it wasn't miracles that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't and sometimes were lasting and sometimes aren't, as some of the alleged miracles are that occur today. But his were clearly from heaven. and The power was something that was heavenly, never been seen before. He'd risen people from the dead. He'd healed the lepers. He'd cast out demons. And and then just recently, he's multiplied loaves and fishes to feed in abundance a great crowd and to have even more left than that with which they started. So Jesus had shown these things. And 
These were sign enough, if you want to call them sign, attestations, confirmations, seals to the truth of what he said. And they should have believed this because, after all, these were biblical signs, his healing and his claims to be the Messiah who had this day uh, come to save his people Israel. Isaiah 35, for example, and we've alluded to this before in dealing with the miracles of Jesus. Isaiah 35 tells us that when Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. Waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and, and on and on. It's definitely the speaking of the, the fact that God comes in this Messiah to save his own. Isaiah chapter 60 and 61, 1 and 2, that Jesus says is fulfilled uh, this day when he comes to the synagogue of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, and and on and on and on. These things I say, and Jesus knew, were enough. The people didn't need any other attestations than the ones he was giving. And now the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were united in their opposition to him. And they wouldn't have believed if they saw another miracle anyway. It's amazing their decided evil. Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And the word there for evil, poneros, it's not just kakos, that would be a bad thing and wickedness, but this is a decided, relentless, evil, evil that pursues its wicked way and in this case would undo Jesus if that were possible by tripping him up. And they're an adulterous generation, meaning by that Jesus does that They are those who are apostate. They are those who are leading the generation of Israel to hell. They are the blind leading the blind, and they're both falling into the ditch. And they are both exposed to the wrath of God in the way of their their terrible teachings about the kingdom of heaven, this carnal thing that they're teaching, and this terrible denial of the Messiah They can't see him, though he's staring them in the face. And they have no love for him or for God or for God's people when they add to the commandments of God and they make for commandments of God their own traditions. And they would fence in the people and keep the things of God from them so long as they could corral the people and make their own denomination of people so they can get a following and get accolades from men. Jesus has done signs. There have been other signs as well that it's the time. It's the time 
of salvation and also the sign of the time of judgment. Jesus upbraids the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees for knowing the signs of the weather, for being good meteorologists, but not knowing the signs of the times and which signs have been displayed right before them. You understand the, the saying here, the common understanding was, if it was fair weather at night, it was sailor's delight, as we say. And if it was red, uh, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. That was the, the common weather forecast or the prediction of the weather. Well, they knew that, all right. But he says, though you know how to discern the face of the sky, you cannot discern the signs of the times. And what he's meaning by that is you cannot discern the signs of this epical thing that's upon you. That's the word times there, kairos, the signs of the chiron, the signs of this end of the old times and this inauguration of the new. You can't discern that, can you? The Bible speaks of the times when there will be salvation and the Messiah leading the way, but also the time of judgment, which occurs at the same time, and you can't get that either, because you don't want to admit it's upon the Jews, and yet it's upon them. And those great weather forecasters show themselves to be dismal Messiah forecasters. They don't get Jesus. They don't get the fact that he came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. They don't understand why what they're doing is worthy of judgment and not the praise of God. They don't want to know the way to heaven, which is faith in Jesus. That is, that is how they will be saved. If they will be saved, you must place your trust in Jesus Christ, the only way to God. They don't want the fact that Jesus here is claiming to be the Savior and he doesn't need men. They especially don't like the fact that he is coming to establish a spiritual kingdom that comes not with observation, but is entirely not of this world, though it be in this world. All their ideas of God and truth and Messiah and salvation are wrong, are wrong. They should have known when John the Baptist came that he was the herald of the way. He was the beginning of the signs, this prophet out of nowhere, out of the 400 years of silence, suddenly this prophet amongst them who is claiming to be this herald of which the prophets have spoken of just before the end of time. They should have known that. And when he'd said the kingdom of heaven is at hand and repent and believe, they should have listened to him. And when he pointed out that Jesus is the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they should have listened seriously to that, children. The signs of the times. They also should have taken seriously the fact that when Jesus was baptized, there was the Father's voice out of heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And there was the sign as of the dove descending upon him. 
the beginning of the public ministry of the Son of God on earth. But they wanted another. In all of this, to show just how ignorant they were, not only, but how hateful and resistant to truth. This is a testimony to their evil. What Jesus does is say, in Mark, no sign will be given. But in our text, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what he's meaning, and this is the, how Matthew and Mark don't contradict, but they are the same from different points of view. What he's meaning is, there's already been a sign given. And it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. And the explanation from that is given, and that's why I read it in Mark, Matthew chapter 12, when they first asked about Jesus, uh, the sign from Jesus, the explanation of that is given in that Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. And then after that, he was spat out on the, grand and he, uh, the land and he preached to, to uh, Nineveh. And Jesus alludes to that in another place. He said, this is the sign of the reality of my own death and burial for three days and my resurrection. This is what he says. There's no sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. There's no reality to that, and it is in a grand reality, but my death and my resurrection from the dead. Now, this is the sign that is the sign of signs. This is what Jesus says. There's other signs that have been given, but he ignores them, as it were. He doesn't allude to the fact that there was Isaiah or there was Isaiah 35 and then Isaiah 61 and, and there was all these healings, but he said there's just one and there's just one in the word of God that links me to everything about the coming age, the times, the epoch, the great event that's upon you of judgment and salvation, the turning of all of time, the fulfillment of the time. It's about this, my death, my resurrection. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Pharisees, excuse me, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that would have been a slap in the face if they had really known what that meant. It's designed to be, because the Pharisees, of course, didn't want anything to do with the need of sacrifice of another for their sins. They were deniers of their sins. The Sadducees, they were the liberals of the day, and they denied the resurrection. That's why it's odd that these theological strange allies would be brought together, Pharisees and Sadducees. Maybe the only reason is, what, is that they were part of the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy that was the leader of the Jews in those days, the Sadducees were of the royalty and of the high priests and so on. Pharisees were the legalists and the self-righteous ones. And somehow they came together. But especially here, they're together, as I said before, because they are together against this common enemy, and that enemy is Jesus. Put away the differences. We'll talk about them later. 
We have work to do. We have to get this guy, trip him up, test him, tempt God, and show just how unmessianic he is. But Jesus says, here's the sign. The sign of his death, the sign of his resurrection. That's what Jonah is. Very unlikely sort of sign, you might think. Jonah, after all, was a disobedient prophet. And Jonah is thrown into the water by the sailors. And then he's taken up by the great fish and spat out on the ground and reluctantly goes to Nineveh. Isn't it amazing how our Savior condescends to see in himself and have signified for himself and of himself this kind of a prophet, this kind of a story, this history that is rather sordid and showing the prejudice of the Jews upon the Assyrians and and they're wanting simply to circle wagons and they're not understanding that in Abraham all the nations shall be blessed. Isn't that, isn't that so amazing that Jesus would associate himself with Jonah? Now, beloved, the, that should not surprise us really because the greater amazing thing is that Reality of the thing that the sign signified. His death, his substitutionary atonement. This is the sign, the fulfillment of the sign, this thing signified. This is what all the miracles point to that God saves sinners by becoming sin in the person of his Son. Him who knew no sin takes on our sin and our guilt and the wrath of God and dies for it. And then he rises. Just as he said he would. And exactly because the Father in heaven approved of his sacrifice and every one of our sins is paid for. Hallelujah. This is the sign of all the hallelujahs, the sign of all the joy, the reality of Jesus' blood, of his resurrection, his glory, the victory over sin and death. This is it. One sign. One sign that's already been given. No new sign will be given, he says. He's not going to play that game. One sign has been given, and you'll see the reality of that sign not long from hence. But here, a scriptural sign. Here, a sign of the grace of God. Here, a sign that the church today needs to remember is the thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus And I wonder sometimes if we're tempted ourselves to have some other, some other thing than the preaching of the cross and the resurrection. If you're thinking that, beloved, if you're ever thinking that, 
the elders are ever thinking that, God forbid it would. Please come to me and out with it. Because one of us needs correction. And it's you. The cross is here given as the thing. The one thing needful. The truth. And again, Jesus, we might say, is cryptic here. And it's true, in a way. Because this Savior who reveals truth to the, to the, the children of God would would hide it from the wise and the prudent, from those who thought much of themselves. In fact, this is what he does. No sign will be given it. And he left them and departed. The word departed, or left them, I should say, is a word used in 2 Peter 2.15 of the wicked who forsake the Lord. They forsake the Lord. Here, it's used of Jesus forsaking the wicked. It's an amazing thing that's going on here. See, it's a crisis. And the Pharisees and the the Sadducees, they've come to Jesus and they've wanted to create a stir. They've wanted him to go somewhere and be ashamed of himself and go back into his hole and back to the brothels maybe from where he was born and spawned and so on. No need for him. But Jesus meets them head on. And when he leaves, he leaves and it's judgment. A striking word here, powerful word. They have their thing to say to him. He leaves them. He forsakes them. He abandons them. The blind leaders of the blind. Beloved, that's judgment, and that's exactly what he left them to. And when he died on the cross, or when he's about to die on the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world come. And I believe that this crisis here was the beginning of that judgment of this world and of that evil and adulterous generation, this religious generation that sought signs and seeks signs even today. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 1, and somewhere in the middle there, Paul bemoans the fact that the Jews seek after signs. They still do. After Jesus is resurrected, They're seeking after signs. There are a generation still of those who seek after signs. They're this corporation. They're this religious group that is ever looking, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, ever denying and rejecting the Messiah and the basics of salvation through grace alone and by faith alone. And so... They're given over to that. And I believe that is today as well. Except that many of the Jews are apostate altogether. They've given up on God. And they have no use for the scriptures, certainly not the New Testament. Beloved, it's a kind of judgment upon all of the religious world. 
And I believe this really applies to today as well. This generation then was seeking a sign. But again, the Jews are seeking a sign even today, Paul says. And the Greeks are seeking after wisdom. And then Paul says, instead, we preach Christ crucified. Here it is, the crisis. The Jews, the religious ones who still believe in the Old Testament, they're seeking signs. They're seeking a Messiah. And he's got to show himself according to their assessment and their standards of what Messiah ought to look like. Certainly not Messiah of blood and the cross and so on. And the, the Greeks, they're another class of people under the judgment of God. They're left to seeking wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Not Christ. And the Jews and the Greeks, they're united in that. This is this world. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, strange bedfellows. This whole world is united in its philosophy, in its religion, in its politics, and so on. United, at least in this. They are against the claims of Jesus. It's the world we live in. And sadly... There's many in the evangelical world that's following this way of sign-seeking. Martin Luther called it the theology of glory. You've heard of that recently. They're seeking something, some significance of Christianity and of Christ other than the cross, maybe in the culture, so that there can be a kind of Christianization Without the blood, we don't need that, but some improvement, simply if we tell the people this is how you improve yourself, as if this were the gospel. Jesus says there's only one sign. There's only one reality, the cross of Calvary, signified by Jonah's death, and then his resurrection, signifying Jesus' resurrection. There's only one message you need. And there's only one thing that the congregation needs to know. That's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there's only one fruit that you have to bear. It's the fruit of that relationship with Jesus. Through faith in him, through repentance, through denying yourself and taking up your cross on his behalf and believing in that worth of the cross, in that reality of the resurrection, in that life eternal that he gives to us. Don't seek a sign. Don't seek a truth other than Calvary and the gospel of Calvary, the truth as it is in Jesus. We're in such a day in which humanism prevails. One of the early humanists, his name was Voltaire, he said, even if a thousand people attested to a miracle, I'd rather not believe that and trust my senses more than admit to a miracle. It's where people live today, whether they're in the church or not. Wanting something more, something bigger, something more moving, something more thrilling, some religious escapade, some religious entertainment, involvement, or hype that's going to carry us through all the blahness of life 
and through death itself. Just give me Jesus. That's my prayer. We live in a critical age, an age when people are trying to add to the cross, add to the law, add to the gospel, diverting the people's attention away from preaching and teaching and getting into realms which is not suitable for the church, politics. We're here to preach. We're here to prophesy. We have a word for all men, regardless of their, of their policies, of their party. Repent and believe on the Lord. And believing on the Lord, bring his truth. That's the word. That's the word of the church of Christ. This is the gospel. May all of us believe that, beloved. And the fact that we do is truly a reality of the grace of God. Keep seeking the kingdom first, beloved. Keep that. Keep praying that the minister will preach this one thing of Christ, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, until the kingdom come. Because he's coming again. There's just one other time there's going to be signs. And the sign of the Son of Man is seen in glory. He coming with the clouds of heaven. The sign of the crucified and risen one. And now we behold his kingdom come. Be the faithful generation, not the adulterous generation. The ones who twist the truth for their own ends. Be the faithful generation, even if it gets you crucified. Mocked, belittled as those thorns in the sides of everybody. So be it. Preach, preach, hear, believe, and be the doers of the word that you are. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless us and keep us to be those who love you in Jesus revealed and who love the gospel. Lord, keep us and free us from every temptation to tempt you, to prove the significance of the cross of Calvary and the fact of the resurrection, to see it by some sight and not to believe it. Lord, work in us, work in the young people, work in the church of this generation and tomorrow's generation, truth, May we be the faithful generation in which there's faith, which there's a love of the truth and a love of the people of God and a love of the Jesus of the people of God and of the truth. God, keep us. Help us to be faithful in all things. Help us to abide in our callings and to be content. Help us to be happy even as we go to the grave and say goodbye to loved ones. Help us, Lord, in all things to be your people on behalf of this great Savior, the word of wisdom, the word of life, the word we love to hear and to speak. Amen.